beginning a new study for the summer, and uh, we are going to be looking at the Psalms of Ascent. These are uh, very largely bite-sized psalms as we'll work through them this summer. Most of them are rather short. The longest is only uh, 18 verses, many of them only three. Uh, most of them range around seven. Uh, but they will be little snippets, meditations for us as we consider what it is uh, to walk with the Lord in this life. We're going to read Psalm 120 today. If you have an ESV, that's probably on page 516. And uh, as uh, we have been separated... Uh, and, and as we come together today, I'm realizing how much I've missed some of the little things with you all. And there are some things that we would normally do, like singing, that we're not doing, uh, but other things that we can do. And one of the things uh, that we can do as a church together is stand. Not only lift our voices, but lift our heads and our hearts. And as we give attention to God's word being read, I want to ask that you would stand together with me. Let us pray and let us come to God's word together. Oh, gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts to receive it. Give us your Holy Spirit. Your word is living and active, and so we pray that you would live and act in our hearts through it. That you would lay us open, that you would show us your truth, that you would show us your Savior. Do a work to glorify yourself as we read and understand your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word. Psalm 120, a song of ascent. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. You may be seated. When our family prepares for a road trip, to be honest, Sarah takes care of most of the hard work. <laughs> she does most of the packing. She gathers the clothes for the kids. She, she stuffs all of the snacks into the cooler and basically leaves me uh, just to take care of my own duffel bag and to gather my playlist. And uh, to be honest, I, I probably put more effort into choosing my songs than I do arranging my suitcase. Uh, I am stubborn enough that I insist on doing most, if not all, of the driving. And that means that, especially for those long trips uh, into Pennsylvania to see our family, I need a few things. Uh, I need podcasts uh, in the early morning hours to keep my mind awake while everybody else sleeps. I need music uh, to break up the silence when we run out of things to talk about. And we all need audiobooks to help those miles pass more easily. Today, as we begin this series in the Psalms of Ascena, perhaps it's helpful for us to think of this as God's road trip playlist. We're starting here in Psalm 120, and for the next 15 psalms, we encounter psalms that all bear the same inscription, the same title, and it's a part of the Hebrew text, that, uh, that line there that says a song of ascents, or if you've got your King James, it's a song of degrees. And there are various guesses as to what exactly it means, songs 
of ascent, songs of degrees. But all of the, the commentators, all of the scholars agree that it has something to do with a, a sort of step-by-step -step upward progression toward the Lord in, in whatever sphere that might take. Some of the older commentators, they said maybe these, uh, these were about uh, the 15 stages on the way as the, as the exiles returned from Babylon back into Jerusalem and coming back into the promised land. Others said, no, no, th this is about the 15 steps, literal steps that are uh, between the courtyard and the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. Others said, no, no, really, it's just about arranging these with, with tunes that have an upward swing toward the end, a sort of rising crescendo of praise. And those are all pretty good guesses. I, I wouldn't fault any of them. But I, I think as we read them together, as we see the overall flow of these psalms throughout this summer, the most logical explanation is that these are pilgrim songs. These are traveling songs. These are the songs that God's people would have sung together in their yearly ascent back up to Jerusalem, back to the mountain of God to attend to the feast that the Lord had called his people to come to. And these are traveling songs. They make the miles more tolerable as you're walking along those streets. They engage the souls of the people as they move along the way. They express the joy and the longing and the expectation. Do you know that expectation of joining other worshipers in God's presence? And for all these reasons, the Psalms of Ascent are still the perfect playlist for God's traveling church. And we often forget that we are a pilgrim people. We've always been a pilgrim people, actually. We are followers on the way with the Lord going up to the Father. We are living in this world as strangers and sojourners. We're journeying, as John Bunyan said, from this world to that which is to come. We are always pressing forward to the upward call in Christ Jesus. And as we journey together, these songs express the joy and the longing that are a part of our pilgrimage. You may have noticed that Psalm 120 is, is situated firmly in longing. It's a psalm that begins with distress, and it ends with war. And all along the way, it breathes out the, the dissatisfaction with this world that gnaws at the heart of every pilgrim. This is a song for those who are homesick. It's a song for those who long to be closer to the Lord. It's a lament, it's a, it's a prayer that agrees with God that things are not the way they ought to be and we are not where we ought to be. It's a psalm that teaches us to long for the things that our souls need that this world can't provide. So today in Psalm 120, we're going to focus on, on what it is to have a godly longing. What is it that God's, God's pilgrims long for in this world as sojourners? For one, we long for deliverance. That's evident in the opening words. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips. Now, here's a poet who walks where we walk. He makes his way through a world that is shaped not only by his own sin, but by the sin of the people who are around him. He walks the road of difficulty, and sometimes he is surrounded by slander. He is surrounded by accusation, and he is at the mercy, as you are sometimes at the mercy, of the power that people have to destroy one another with their words. I read the story this week of a man 
outside of D.C. who was caught in a case of mistaken identity. The Maryland police uh, used social media, some posts somewhere, to ask the larger community to help them find someone who uh, had assaulted children in a park, a cyclist who had physically assaulted them. And they put out this, this bulletin, please help us find this man. He, he looks like this. He was here on this day. He was here on June 2nd, the post read. Actually, he was there on June 1st. It was a typo, just a little thing. Now, Peter Weinberg had ridden his bike past that spot where it happened on June 2nd, the day after the attack. And on his bike ride, he used an app on his phone to record his ride and to upload it to the Internet. And within hours, the mob descended and decided that Peter Weinberg was the culprit. And you can imagine how the scene went from there. Peter became a victim of what is now known as doxing. Loose on the internet, found out where he works. Somebody posted his home address. And within hours, he was receiving message after message after message, giving him death threats, telling him what a low-life scum he was, calling for him to be fired. And that's how it goes. Your life can unravel just as quickly as a lie can spread. And in our culture, that's pretty quickly. You've probably never been the victim of doxing, but you know what it is to be slandered. You know what it is to have a lie told against you. Something simple. Your sister tells a, a tale that gets you in trouble instead of her. Your coworker blames you uh, for that project that failed, even though you never even had a hand in the work that was done. Your spouse lays all the blame for your marital problems on your shoulders, and they refuse to share any of the guilt, even though everybody knows it goes both ways. And it gets worse, worse from there. You know the distress of having someone speak against you when they didn't actually know the situation you were facing. You've been targeted, maybe for any number of reasons, by someone who actually wanted to see you hurt. And how do you respond when that happens? Do you quietly, gently try to clear your name? Or do you bristle? Do you posture? Do you... Do you play the same dirty game that's being played on you? And do you push back with all that you've got? Do you try to deliver yourself? It's not a bad thing, actually, to, to want to be free from slander, <laughs> to fight for justice, to fight for truth. It's not even a, a particularly religious impulse to want to be free of other people saying slanderous things against you. That's not a bad thing. But it's only the pilgrim who knows where to turn when wicked men say all manner of evil things falsely against us. And that's because in every difficulty, the pilgrim looks first to the Lord for deliverance. The pilgrim has been trained by experience to understand that there is no hurt too small, there's no catastrophe too large for us to call out to the Lord and for him to answer his children. And so the world runs after human solutions to our human problems while the pilgrim calls on the Lord. And the pilgrim cries out. But the pilgrim doesn't cry out for revenge. The pilgrim doesn't cry out for retaliation, not even self-assertion. The pilgrim cries out for deliverance. They look to the hand of the Lord. They cry to the ear of their Savior who hears and answers in all our afflictions. 
Better yet, they call out to the Savior who felt the stab of slander in his own life. The life of Jesus is a chronicle of accusations, folks. Wicked men stood publicly to condemn him with falsehood. And what was his response? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus looked to the Father. He waited. He suffered. He longed for deliverance. And in his distress, his cry rose to God. And, and yes, Jesus was doing something different than you and I were doing. Jesus was willingly offering himself as a sacrifice for sinners. But even while he was offering himself in our place, he was showing us what it means to work and to walk like a pilgrim. He taught us how to long for deliverance from the only one who can grant it. That's what pilgrims do. They long for deliverance. Now, like Jesus, we also long for justice. Isn't that what it says in 1 Peter? That line I just read. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's just. He's waiting. And Jesus knows, just like the psalmist knows, that sometimes God's deliverance doesn't come as quickly as we might want it to. That doesn't mean that it's not coming. God's deliverance isn't a flighty, flippant, sort of spontaneous thing that just peppers our lives all over the place. Very often, God's deliverance comes in slow and steady, deliberate vindication of his people. It comes in the form of justice. And pilgrims know that even if justice tarries, according to our clock, it always comes in God's perfect timing. That's why the psalmist speaks of the future. Verse 3. Sometime in the future, maybe soon, maybe far away, but sometime, what shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? That double language there, it sounds strange to us, but that's the way that Scripture speaks of God's perfect judgment. God is slow to anger, but he will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. And so we read the prophets and we hear them announcing God's judgment for three transgressions and yet for four. We hear uh, godly Ruth. We hear other righteous people in the Old Testament invoking uh, a, an oath upon themselves. May God do so to me and more also, if anything but death separates, says Ruth. Well, that's the idea. What shall be given to you? What more shall be done to you? The psalmist is waiting for God's perfect justice to be done. It is that calculated judgment of God that pays back evil for evil and harm for harm. It is that justice that leaves no lie unpunished. And so as slander multiplies, so does retribution. And here, God's retribution penetrates as deeply as truth itself. The psalmist says that it's like the arrow of the mighty man that never misses its mark. It's the coal of the broom tree. It burns long and hot with cleansing fire. The psalmist depicts God's justice, his judgment as sharp and pure and perfectly applied. And that's the kind of thing pilgrims ought to long for. This is a challenge for those of us who live in a society where God's justice 
is seen as something ridiculous, a stumbling block, if anything. You speak of God's judgment against sinners out in the world, and it is likely to be rejected as it is to be celebrated, as we do. Far more likely, I think, to be rejected. The God who punishes sinners? Come on. That's archaic. That's unbelievable. That's why I don't want any of your religions. You preach a God who's angry and who punishes people with justice. And so the mold of our culture tries to press us into speaking only of a God of infinite, unconditional love. They try to get us to put away that thought of God's anger and his justice against sin. And what happens if we take that tack? What is the change that happens in our approach and our conversations about God and the world that he's made if we choose to speak only of unconditional love and never about God's justice? We never look for those things. What is the change that happens? Well, it's a change that looks around at the world and says, actually, there's nothing so bad around here that, that God should be all that upset about. Yeah, I, I think God would probably be fine. That, that's the change that happens if we get rid of God's justice, it, it, is a, it is a slight shift in the conversation that glorifies the world around us that says, you know what, this is probably enough. We're doing okay. It is an attempt to distance God's perfection from the final evaluation of humanity. But folks, doesn't everything around us, <laughs> doesn't everything around us convince you that we are not so competent to render justice as it ought to be rendered? Doesn't it bother you the way that innocent men are often accused? Doesn't it bother you when liars and thieves and murderous men get off on technicalities? Doesn't it bother you when peoples are oppressed, when children are harmed, when the powers that be are either powerless or ignorant or, or just simply don't care? Don't you live in a world that cries out for a justice better than what we've been able to cobble together on our own? I mean, turn on the news. What we are seeing around us every day is an attempt at justice among a whole bunch of people who can't even agree on what justice is supposed to look like. We don't even have the foundational level together. There's violence in our streets on all sides, and we of all people ought to be willing to stand up and speak in favor of those who are being victimized. We ought be able to stand up for an image-bearer of God who dies with a knee on his neck. We also ought to be willing to stand up for police officers who are being assaulted and ambushed for doing their jobs. As Christians, we of all people ought to stand up for justice in our world, but we as Christians of all people ought to be convinced that we need a justice that's better than what this world can offer. Doesn't it make you yearn for God's perfect justice? If it does, dear pilgrim, be careful how you walk. If your journey is not in Christ, God's justice is a foolish thing to long for. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, he says, On the day of judgment, <clears throat> people will give account for every careless word they speak. It's not only the liars out there, but the liars in here. It means the falsehoods that live 
and breed and breathe in our hearts, the false accusations that come from our mouths, those deserve God's justice just as much as those who speak against us, against you, against me. Now, if you trust in Jesus Christ and his saving, finished work for sinners, his atoning death and his life-giving resurrection, if you trust in his, his offer of salvation, and if you have claimed those promises through faith and repentance, then he's taken away the guilt that you deserve. And God's justice is laid on him instead of you. But if you walk without Christ in this world, you will account for those words without an advocate. And as the psalmist says, God's judgment will be sharp, sure, and perfectly applied. God's pilgrims, they long for justice. We long for deliverance. Most of all, I think we long for home. In the closing verses, our, our psalmist vents his frustration <laughs> at being surrounded by bloodthirsty people. And he says it's as much at least a problem of where he lives, where he's pitched his tent. Verse 5, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Now, you probably don't know where Meshach or Kedar are any more than I did at the beginning of last week. Meshach and Kedar are neighbors, far distant neighbors, heathen nations around Jerusalem, and they live in very different opposite directions. Meshach is a tribe of slave traders all the way up on the Black Sea at the northern tip of what is today Turkey. And Kedar, they're descendants of Ishmael, they're nomads down in the bottom parts of the Arabian Peninsula. Opposite directions, almost as far as the Israelite could imagine. And so they're so far from Israel, they're so far from one another that the psalmist probably isn't saying he actually had his dwelling among these people. What's he saying? He's saying that he's surrounded by so much hatred and malice and antagonism, even by the people in his own society, that it feels like he's living among people that have no fear of God at all before their eyes. He is a stranger and a sojourner, even in his own neighborhood. Now, if, as I suggested, that these psalms were meant to be sung on the way up to Jerusalem, then this is the perfect place to begin that journey. If that is the case, then this psalm begins by showing us the psalmist in a faraway land, even in his own neighborhood, even feeling like a sojourner, and he sets his mind, he sets his heart to Mount Zion, where we will find in Psalm 22 that he will go up and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He will pray for peace and security for everyone within her walls. But now he laments his space among unbelievers. He longs for a country where all the citizens strive for shalom together. He yearns for the kind of paradise that human kingdoms and empires have only been able to dream about. He longs for a place without warfare or conflict, without wickedness or hatred or hurtful words. And dear pilgrims, so do we. 2 Peter chapter 3 reminds us that according to God's promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, and we are still waiting. And while we wait, we've got to be careful of forgetting where it is that we're headed. We have to be careful of getting too awfully comfortable where we are right now. As usual, John Bunyan's analogy, his allegory, gives us a 
perfect picture of how this happens in our walk with God. You may remember in the opening scenes of Pilgrim's Progress, a Christian is lamenting his life in the city of destruction. He has become convinced of God's impending judgment, and he is fixated on fleeing for his life to the celestial city. And others try to persuade him to give up his convictions, but when they find that he cannot be persuaded to give them up, they try a different tact, and they say, well, just, that's fine, but just forget about the journey. Just get comfortable where you are. Just settle in. Can, can you imagine the disruption it will mean for your family, for your livelihood, if you should go to some faraway place? They begin to stop him, to try to stop him by force, by distraction. And actually, throughout the rest of the allegory, the attempt never changes. It's not a new tactic anywhere. The rest of Pilgrim's Progress is all about Christian and his traveling companions being faced with attempt after attempt after attempt to try to get them either to take a shortcut into the wrong path or to give up the journey altogether. Why are you going in that direction? Set up shop here in Vanity Fair where things are comfortable, where it's enjoyable. Legality, he can give you a place to stay. Find a spot along the road where you can find shelter and maybe fall asleep for a while. The whole thing is about getting him to be comfortable where he is and forget about where he ought to be going. And that's the temptation that faces us as well as pilgrims. The problem is that humans are very largely cold-blooded spiritual creatures. We're like turtles. And you put the turtle in the sunshine and he'll heat up and he'll move a little bit more. And you put him in the shade and the cold water and he'll slow down. And you've seen it happen in both directions. You've seen the Christian kid who makes dumb decisions when he hangs out with his bonehead friends. And you've seen the rank pagan unbeliever who instinctively, nobody tells them or asks them, but they find themselves in a room full of believers and suddenly they're cleaning up their language. Why? we tend to take on the spiritual environment, the temperature around us. And the problem is that we spend so much time interacting with the unbelieving world, we spend our lives dwelling among the tents of Meshach and Cater, that after a while, that's the environment that feels comfortable to us. And we learn to accept the injustices and the falsehoods around us. We forget to push against. We stop pushing against the injustices, the falsehoods that lodge themselves in our hearts. And we slip ever so slowly, like the turtle, into the bottom of the pond. And we close our eyes and we slow ourselves down and we just become one with the mud. And we spend the winter there. And how, who knows how long that winter will last. And it is a work of the Holy Spirit to wake us up and to dig us out and to make us realize that this is not where we are meant to be. This is not our home. Christ has gone ahead of us to prepare a better place, and he is coming back, and we are going there in the presence of the Father, and until that day, his pilgrims look at this world with a kind of godly dissatisfaction as we long for home. God's Holy Spirit fills our lungs to cry out, Woe is me that I dwell among the tents of Meshach and Cater. And God fills our hearts to long for home. Folks, this psalm is not one of those psalms that ends with that rising lilt, that crescendo of praise. And that's okay. Sometimes that's where we need to be for a while. 
sit in that longing, to sit in the lamentation of our situation, where we find ourselves, where the Lord has placed us for now, is one of the ways that God keeps us walking close to him. And he gives his spirit to fill our hearts with longing, to long for deliverance, and to long for justice, and to long for home. Let's pilgrim, won't you pray with me? Gracious Lord our God, we thank you that you are our great shepherd and you lead us through every valley. You feed us and you water us beside the still waters. As one who cares for your people, you will render justice and you have rendered justice on our behalf already on our Savior, on your Son. So Lord, thank you for keeping us and lead us and cause us to walk with Christ until that day that we are with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And hear now God's benediction, his good word for his people. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, just a few things. Uh, Ronnie has three announcements for the ladies. First, there's a women's book study uh, beginning this coming Tuesday. Uh, talk to Kathy if you haven't already, Kathy Creed. Uh, there's a prayer meeting Wednesday at noon, and that's been canceled this week, but there is a replacement, as there always is Thursday night. Contact Kathy Owens. Uh, so reach out to all of our Kathys. If you know a Kathy, contact her. She'll tell you what's up. Uh, we'll figure out what we're doing together. Uh, and then one from Andrew. He's still in need of Sunday school teachers, especially someone to cover June 28th. Andrew, where are you going to be on June 28th? Not here. Somebody's got to get married. Okay. Uh, fast approaching. Contact Andrew if you're willing to help, or he'll contact you. That's it. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday, folks. Uh, the deacons, I believe, are to usher us out. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. 